Recently, the Census Bureau released a study. They looked at individuals ages 18 to 29 and discovered that 36% of those reported depression. The bottom line is, the spread of COVID leaves people feeling out of control, which is an uncomfortable and unnerving feeling. Even as the respondents got older, ages 30 to 39, they still found that 28% of those respondents reported depression. So as a business leader, don't you have to ask yourself, what percentage of your own team might be struggling right now? What needs might they have? As I personally pondered this question, the Gallup Employee Engagement Questionnaire came to mind. So I looked it up and two questions specifically jumped out at me. Does your supervisor or someone at work seem to care about you as a person? And is there someone at work who encourages you for your development? Essentially, these are questions about mentorship. Is there someone in your life and in your organization that's mentoring you? It got me thinking, in the midst of COVID, in the midst of all this uncertainty, man, your employees, your team needs mentorship more than ever. Candidly, the world needs mentorship more than ever. So it's in this spirit, this conviction, that I reached out to one of the best mentors that I've encountered in my own life, Greg Sherwood, to ask him for some of his insights and experiences as it pertains to mentorship over the last 35 years. Well, Greg Sherwood, we are live. How are you doing? Hey, Jared. Good. Good to see you. Alive and well. Alive and well. That's something to be said in this moment in time. Well, let's uh, (laughs) just start with a little bit of uh, who you are and a little background for our listeners. So 33 years of investment advisory experience, 31 years at Quest, an institutional asset manager where you're the president and chief investment officer. So professionally accomplished, personally accomplished. Married for 37 years, kudos, well done. Five kids, three grandkids, two more in the oven. That's got to fill up your weekends. (laughs) How's everyone weathering the storm here with COVID? Yeah, I think from our perspective, the personal side, everybody's good. We got, like I say, grandchildren and things like that, which is a defining moment of a person's life to gain a new title in life, go from being a single guy to a married guy, and then you're a father, and now you're a grandparent. So we're learning that. And I think the COVID thing, interestingly, has drawn our family closer. I think that we spent a lot more time together. So that's been fortuitous timing, I think. Yeah, I think where everybody's doing well. Good to hear. Well, we're going to jump into kind of the deep stuff here momentarily. But I thought while, while I had you on the show, let's start with kind of professionally what you're up to. So you help organizations around the country invest assets to support trustees or beneficiaries of these large pension programs. And so you have strong observations and thoughts on the economy, I guess. What are you seeing here, kind of from an economic perspective, making heads or tails of our first major pandemic, you know, in the last hundred years or so? Yeah, that's a great question. I get that a lot now. We have a lot of very large funds, as you mentioned. We manage assets from some state money out of New York to state of Michigan money all the way out to Hawaii and the hotel workers, some union money out there. And it really varies their experience and what's going on in the world. When you talk to the people that work in hotels in Hawaii, particularly the outer islands of Hawaii, they're just decimated. We're talking close to 90% unemployment. But when you talk to certain other workers and people working, let's say in the Midwest, in the construction areas, uh, life is busy. They're just kind of humming right along. So the world is very 
splintered right now, depending on your industry. From our perch, we do talk to a lot of people all over the country that work in various trades. And so I think on the ground, if you are in an industry that is benefiting from sort of this new paradigm of reality by way of Zoom video and you're maybe officing from home or you're delivering foods through e-commerce and the whole e-commerce space, et cetera, it's never been better. If you're working in restaurants or hotels, if you're working in the travel industry, things like that, it's an absolute utter disaster and some spectrum in between. And on the other hand, we manage money, as you mentioned, for these large plans. These are multi-billion dollar plans in many cases, so they're very sophisticated. What's interesting is that the stock market actually today hit a new all-time high as measured by the S&P 500 and the NASDAQ. On the other hand, those businesses that are represented in those industries, then in the hotel areas and things are very much struggling. So it's just an interesting time. The haves and the have-nots have widened, obviously, in here on the ground. Stock investors and bond investors, and to large degrees, real estate investors have done very, very well this year, surprisingly so. As a business owner yourself here in the Northwest, any specific kind of questions you think that are uniquely insightful to kind of provoke the planning that people should be considering as we contemplate what 2021 might look like? Often the the right answer is preceded by the right questions. Just curious if you have any potentially potent questions that could clarify some of the confusion. Yeah, it's so nuanced, Jared. It's really difficult to have like a canned answer for anybody. I think for businesses that feel, business owners that feel threatened because their industries are threatened, because of the lockdown and such, I think that there's a tendency to want to hoard capital in here. And I, we are encouraging that. We're encouraging our business owners that we negotiate and talk with and counsel with to you know, make sure you have ample lines of credit. It's very uh, tenuous here in the next three to six months for a number of reasons. But one of the main things is this life preserver that we got thrown from the feds that sort of floated many workers for the last four or five months is going away. And yet we're still in, by and large, in lockdown for a lot of businesses. So it's, it's I've been doing this for 33 years. I've seen a lot of uh, ups and downs. This is the most uncertain period I can ever remember. And I think I'm speaking for anybody who's been around for a period of time. So on balance, I think what we're counseling is making sure that your balance sheet and your cash is as much as you can have in here to sort of weather the next, say, six months of the, of the unknown right now. Businesses seem cautious to us when you talk to actual business owners. We know. That's what we've seen here as well. If any of us yeah. had a working crystal ball, we'd be making a lot of money these days. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I guess that will kind of transition us into the meat and potatoes of our conversation today. I've been really looking forward to it. You know, I met you about 10 years ago, and the initiation of our relationship was essentially mentor mentee working through an organization that you helped found originally about 20 years ago, I was thinking, you know, what topic right now would create value for our community, for our clients as they're processing this? And so there's the, the initial financial shock of this whole thing. So you create the, that emotional distress of associated with survival. And now that we've worked through survival, it's now pivoting back towards the health and wellness of your team. Mm. Delap is a people business. Quest is a people business. Really, the assets of our business go down the elevators at the end of every day. We're nothing without our people. And so I wanted to have a conversation with you about mentorship. Mm. You've been as focused on mentorship as anyone I know, and as 
business owner, we know that mentorship is important, but how do we do it in a way that's truly impactful? It impacts people professionally, but personally and, and spiritually. So I just wanted to talk about that. So what, 35 years ago, you kind of created a focus on mentorship. I guess, talk to me about what originally attracted you to that and kind of where you started that journey 35 years ago. I've been asked that in the past. I had a very, some, some personal can, a very difficult upbringing, a very dysfunctional family, but was full of violence and, and there was poverty. And so I experienced a really challenging environment there. There was a handful of people that sort of stepped into my life along the way. I suppose as I reflect back, I haven't been overly philosophical as to the why I do what I do. Probably should do that more often. But it became clear to me in college when I sort of had a conversion of faith and some challenges were laid down by one of my mentors, actually, as to what I, what's worthwhile investing in. And someone told me that two things are, are, are eternal. One is God and one is the souls of men. And I thought, wow. And then the, the, the speaker I listened to at the same time was asking and challenging, who's responsible for this generation of people? And if not you, then who? And I remember thinking to myself, I was one of several hundred students that sit in this hall at Oregon State University back in the early 80s. And I thought it felt like he was talking to me. And that was really the catalyst. I can go back to that point. And ever since then, I have endeavored to pour my life into others around me for the purpose of their professional growth, personal development, and spiritual formation. And that's really the, the launch of this. So human formation and spiritual formation is really my life intellectual formation along the way. And then it's evolved to more of a business and professional counseling, if you will, as I get older. It's been interesting to watch our team just even up close and personal. We've got a group of about seven or eight of us on our investment committee, and it's been a challenging environment. The members on our committee are all younger than I than myself, and I've noticed the challenges. More, It seems more personal, more psychological than professional. These are very highly trained people that do what they do and are analysts for our team. But what seems to have been our biggest challenge at Quest has been more psychological, and I would argue at some level spiritual. I think this is beginning to take its toll. You, you get pounded by news day after day after day, and it, it is dispiriting to the human soul, and that affects our teams. It affects your decisions. It affects the relationships on the team. So I've found myself here in the last six months, especially being highly involved in sort of the, say, reframing of the mindset of people. I think that kind of comes back to mentoring. When you, when you look at the definition of, I've got a definition here I looked up just to, it's a fundamental form of human development where one person invests time, energy, and personal know-how in the assistance of growth and the development of the abilities of another person. And I think when you look over the course of your life, the whole arc of your life, the most important work you've probably ever done is to spend time developing and forming another human being. And that takes form in all sorts of venues. And today's world, we're talking even about our professional. So that's what leadership is in a business, is to really sometimes just to get into the hearts and the minds of the people working there. It's, it's a stressful time. You can bring a lot of clarity and assurance to your people by, by mentoring them through these difficult times. And that's what we're doing at Quest right now. Yeah. I could take it a lot of directions. I'll take it this way. As you've been reaching out to your team, I mean, the numbers at a macro level are that people are feeling as isolated, panicked, emotionally fatigued. Mental health, I think, is being challenged right now across the board. And so as a leader trying to keep his team engaged and healthy, what's working for you? I mean, 
for us, it's asking a couple of new questions, checking in on somebody. There's all these virtual tools. So Microsoft Teams has been great for us. Just dropping in on a colleague and the question, how are you doing really? Hmm. That extra really, it kind of punches through so you don't get the fake answer that we're all programmed to give. Or I was once asked by a coach, hey, if I wanted to ask you a question to know how you're really doing, what question would I ask you? And that's an interesting one as well. As you're sitting here trying to not only run a business, but be there for your team, what's different today in this kind of virtual environment? What's working well for you and for the team at Quest? One of the things, yeah, that's, that's an excellent question because it's challenging sometimes as a leader within a company because you have, uh, you know, there's boundaries that you have to respect with people and not get delving too far into their personal lives. I think that's a delicate balance here. But I think for, for what we've been doing, we've mandated vacation this summer. We've shut our offices down uh, frequently on Fridays, which is a little bit unusual for us. We are more personal in asking our, our people how they're doing by way of, I've even asked them like, what's their exercise regime? Are they getting enough sleep? It becomes a little more personal that way. And I think that's been actually, I was always a little nervous about getting too personal with our employees just because of times we live. But I think it's been well received. Everybody's been taking time off. That's not, at least our industry, our business is somewhat of an unusual thing for the purpose of refreshment. So I think it's actually kind of pushing or shoving people out the door early. And maybe in a surprise closing, we'll shut the office two or three hours early, asking them what they're doing for their recreational space there. So it's some small things, but they've been helpful things. And I think I think our staff and our team has been very encouraged by kind of the endorsement and the encouragement to, to recreate, to recreate ourselves, if you will. I think that's awesome. Yeah. At the beginning of this whole thing, I stumbled into a phrase that self-care is not selfish. You can't give what you don't have. And I think it's a wonderful reminder. Yeah. It sounds sometimes selfish to prioritize sleep or to prioritize your health regimen. But again, you can't give something physically, emotionally, spiritually, intellectually that you don't personally possess. And so self-care is not selfish. And I think it's a wonderful reminder personally, and also to share that with your team. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You'd mentioned mentors, plural. One of the things that I think in the midst of this moment that I've really gotten better at is kind of working on my gratitude muscle. Because left to my own demise, there's all kinds of things that are freaky, right? Things that we haven't experienced before, and it stimulates anxiety and worry. Those aren't great things. So I've been trying to kind of mentally tune in, change the channel in my brain to the gratitude channel and focus on the things that are going well. So within our own team, we've, we've had kind of surprise parties. They're kind of a gratitude surprise party. I set up a virtual meeting and then a bunch of people jump into the meeting and we spend a few minutes talking about what that person means to our team and how that person impacts the life of our clients. But as you're kind of framing that moment, you have to spend time thinking about what's great about that person. What do they do for your team? What do they do in the lives of the clients that they get to serve? And, and all of a sudden, you're focused on all the really cool things and the, the amazing people on your team. And it's an incredible thing from a morale standpoint. I was thinking about your mentors. See, these are men or women that have had unique influence on your life. Are they still around? And I guess, have you had the opportunity to tell them who they are or were in your life? Yeah, uh, that's a good question. It tur- turned the question around on me. I, I, I tend to mentor more than I'm, I'm meant, menteed, I guess, if you will. I, many of them are gone, unfortunately. My grandfather was one of them. I had a coach that's gone now. 
there weren't a lot of mentors in my life, to be honest with you, Jared. So, and all of them, with the exception of one, I can think of, I would, I have four key people in my life are, is still around and I have not been in contact with him. He's moved away. So I regret to say that I don't have a lot of personal contact with those people. I, as I mentioned, I kind of grew up in a tougher situation. So I just didn't have a lot of touch points. On the other hand, I'm developing new relationships that I consider mentors. I don't think you mentioned in your opening dialogue, but I am attending a seminary and working on my master's degree in spiritual direction, which is a deep form of mentoring. And I have met some wonderful men in that area. There's actually Benedictine priests who have kind of jumped into a mentoring role in my life. And for that, I am extremely grateful. You never stop finding and and discovering mentors in your life. And uh, that has been a huge blessing for me here in the last year or so. That's awesome. It's a common denominator amongst people that I find myself being attracted to and looking up to is they're lifelong learners. You don't get a 37-year marriage by being young, and yet you're still referencing mentorship, that you're pursuing mentors that can invest in your life, can positively shape who you are so that you're better equipped to engage amongst your peers and positively influence the mentees that are reaching out to you for guidance. I think, yeah, I would add to that too. I just, I think just for the, for the listeners here, I think there's different forms of mentoring. There's the live uh, version that you and I, for example, have known each other for 10 years and we've had a great and growing relationship and I've been able to help you and you've helped me along the way. But I think people often forget too that mentoring can come from the grave, so to speak. There are people who have gone before us historically that have written their narratives, have biographies and things like that, that I find extremely powerful in terms of their influence and mentoring us, as well as people who are living in contemporary society that are tremendous influencers that we can glean and learn from as well. So it doesn't necessarily have to be someone in the living flesh that has the ability to mentor us. And I just would encourage us to think maybe beyond that a little bit, particularly times like this when we can't get out and see people as often. Obviously, like anything, a new skill or developing a skill just requires, there's a fair amount of just do it a little bit of the Nike, just do it. But who are you as a mentor today versus who you were 35 years ago? And I guess what were some of the experiences, aside from life, miles on the tire, so to speak, that have influenced who you are from mentorship perspective? If I'm getting mentored by Greg Sherwood 35 years ago versus our relationship that started 10 years ago, how's it different? And what observations or insights might uh, an aspiring mentor be able to glean from that? I think there's a, yeah, a couple of observations with that. I think the art of listening is really the most important thing. I think I'm a better listener. I know I'm a better listener than I was, say, 20, 30 plus years ago. The art of mentoring is the ability to listen and hear the heart and the pursuits and the hardwiring and the aspirations of the other. And that's something that is a skill that can be developed. And another big word I'll give you is the, the work of what's called interiority. And the inter- interiority is the development of the human soul, the capacity for growth and love and compassion and humility. And I think in as much as the person is willing to submit themselves to that ability to grow, we, we call it be- having bigger hearts, if you will. The bigger the heart, the more capacity and the more poignant and more insightful and discerning is the mentor. And so I would like to think that I have a bigger heart today than I did 30, 35 years ago. In addition to the road miles, as you mentioned, the life experiences, the way the world works and helping people look around the corner a little bit, the horizon, if you will, and 
people don't know what they don't know. And sometimes you can help people get unstuck in situations they can't see out of. I think the heart of the mentor is the most powerful thing in addition to the advice. And that's something that I think I'm considerably different today than I was 10, 20, 30 years ago. It's funny that you said the things you don't know, you don't know. I regularly talk about the dangerous third bucket, the things you know, (laughs) the things you don't know, and then the dangerous third bucket, the things you didn't know, you didn't know. (laughs) There's a lot of discovery that I've said countless times before. If I ever write a book, it might be called the third bucket. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. A lot of tuition paid to the real world. Yeah. Well, how about a different question in terms of, I've heard you describe life in thirds, you know, the first third, the second third, and the third third. So I would identify as kind of the second third. Father married for 16 years, and I've got three kids doing well professionally. Life's good. Help me understand, I guess, what were some of your conclusions or truths, your reality during the first third, maybe the second third, and finally the third third? Sometimes it's like climbing a mountain. You know, here in the Northwest, you start doing a switch back, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. You often can't see. Then as you get a little higher, the trees get a little thinner and you can get to see a little bit. Then you punch through the tree line and all of a sudden you see great. I've observed different convictions for people at different seasons of life and a level of clarity that they would have experienced their 40s differently knowing what they know today. So I guess from that perspective, if I'm just trying to borrow some of your experience First, third, second, third, third, third. If there's kind of a mission statement or a summary, cliff notes of kind of how you thought the world was in that moment, how that evolved, first, third, second, third to third, third. Do you identify right now third, third of life? The final third? (laughs) Well, you can see me. They can't, but absolutely the white beard. And for the listeners at home, he's got a sweet (laughs) Moses beard. It's beautiful. (laughs) Very white, very gray, and proof of age. So let me frame it a little bit so maybe can I, people can understand. The third third of life is, is it implies the third, first third of your life, which is basically zero to something around age 25 years old. And then that period of time, you're going through formation in every way, physically, intellectually, spiritually, emotionally, so forth. And you're figuring out who you are as a person, your talents, your gifts, you're becoming educated. And in every way, you're becoming formed. And I, that's why I've loved to spend so much time with people under 25. They're still, as I say, the concrete isn't hard yet. They're still malleable. They're still willing to learn, to receive information. So it's just, I love young people. I will always love young people. And I, to this day, I spend considerable time with, with college students and under for that very reason. That's the third third. And to, to see their questions go up and begin to discover the world is just such a joy. The second third is, as you mentioned, Jared, is where you're at 25 to 50, early mid-50s, let's say, roughly speaking. And that's a person that has sort of figured life out. You've embarked. You've maybe chosen a life partner. You've gotten married. I call it the left side of the mountain, to use your mountain analogy. And it's not complicated. Once you start having kids and you've got a mortgage, it's not, it's not time for a gap year. It's time to execute. If you've gotten educated and it's, just, it's not complicated, it's more, Monday morning, you're going to work. The guy that I hired me a long time ago, who's now 85 years old, he says, I love to have associates with big mortgages and big families. And the reason he said that was because I know they're going to be at work every morning. Yeah. So it's the time of your life where, it, and frankly, it can get very confusing because it's probably the maximum uh, plate spinning moment. You're capable, you're educated, you're available, you have a lot more energy. And when I spend time, as I do with people in that second third of life, 
it's really a life of about sorting out priorities on a regular basis. It's really trying to live more one step at a time so that they're not going off the rail. And lastly, the third third where I'm at, you reach the summit of a career. You've been doing it something for three decades or more. And you begin to turn towards things like legacy. You turn to towards the interior examination of your heart and where maybe I've misaligned myself and my priorities. And it's, it's a time for soul searching, which I would also, by the way, as a sidebar, advocate people spending a little more time than a day or two contemplating retirement and what that all means. I think it really requires two or three years of reformation of the heart and beginning to look backwards on areas that you need to change so that the last third is productive and helpful to the next generation. With regards to how you walk through that, you've heard me say this, the notion of the big rocks analogy that I've used where the illustration is you have two large rocks, you put them into a jar, you fill the jar then subsequently with slightly larger rocks and then sand, you shake the jar down, you close it, everything closes. You empty the jar out on the table, and then you reverse the order. You put the sand in first, and then the small pebbles and rocks, and then you try to put the big rocks in. The jar does not close. It's a true story, and it's a true metaphor. And the, the meaning of the metaphor is this, that the order in which the rocks go in matter. Big rocks need to go in first. And so I would suggest to people that they really do a lot of examination, and what are the two most important things, that, or the three most important things in their life? and begin to orient their decisions on a daily basis around that which they say is most important. Because what happens when you get to your late 40s and early 50s and you haven't prioritized what you've said are those priorities, which for me are uh, the two greatest commandments. Jesus was asked, he said, well, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Just love God and to love others as yourself. And if you do those two big rocks in first each day, then everything else seems to fit. And the jar closes. Life's confusing. Those are represented by decisions and ethical challenges we go through our day. Unfortunately, many people don't do that. And they get to be late 40s, or early 50s, and the jar doesn't close. We call that a midlife crisis. That's where a person is, uh, metaphorically, put the the ladder on the wrong wall. (laughs) And they climb the wall and they they got to the top and lo and behold, it's leaning against the wrong building. And Unfortunately, in my life, I've had a lot of relationships that have done that, and it's, it's very difficult to contemplate. You've lived the best part of your second third of your life without these priorities in place, and many people are entering up in divorce, or they're alienated from children, or their businesses are took over, the priorities weren't set. So that, in a nutshell, is how I think about life. And I think, fortunately for me, I realized that at a young age, I think, generally speaking, I've been able to think about the rocks in which they go into my life since my early 20s. And that has been, made all the difference. So I, I say that in all humility. It's how I order my life then. It's how I order my life now. And it's, it's very much oriented how I run my business, how I relate to people, what I put my time and energy into by way of my family, concentric circles of relationships that we have in our lives, able to prioritize those things in a way in which now I'm in my late 50s, I uh, have such a different life than what I grew up with in my own, that it's been a challenge to, for anybody listening who has grown up in this extremely dysfunctional family situation, to sort of stop that generational issue with you is not such an easy thing to do. And so anyway, that's kind of how I think of the world. And it's been extremely helpful. And I think it's a truth to actually order and live by. Long answer to your question, but thank you for the question. I'm working on my listening. 
Yeah. My mentor told me I need to be a better listener. <laughs> so, Greg, you mentioned something that I think is really interesting is this concept that's really just a modern creation. This concept of the five-day work week, which is a really kind of modern thing. And then this concept of retirement, which is, again, a, a modern invention that's only been tested by 80 years or so. Help me understand how you, you're thinking about it. Because for your 35-year career of investment management service, you've walked that out. You've prepared the assets for retirees. You spent the better part of three plus decades talking about retirement. And now you're at a moment where demographically, it would make sense to consider retirement. But it's very challenging for people. As I've walked it out with our clients, it's that challenge of trying to rediscover a purpose. Because for years, the purpose was to grow the business. Passion, rediscover a passion because growing the business is something you can be excited about. Growing and developing your team is something that you can be passionate about. It's rediscovering a passion. And then the tricky part is identity. Because every cocktail party you go to, it's, what do you do? What's your name? The second question is, what do you do? And so for a lot of us, that professional identity becomes a really big part of who we are. So as you're kind of kicking around what life someday after Quest looks like, how do you think about retirement in the context of the final third? I don't read anywhere that retirement is part of the, my curriculum. So I, I sort of categorically dismiss that. I do think that the life changes your objectives and your and your your focus does change there. I, I would say this, I actually am starting another group of, in particular this case, men that are in their late 50s, early 60s, because I think what's interesting, I've got a lot of really high level friends that have done tremendous things in their working careers. These are C-suite type people, CEO types and such. Many of those friends of mine over the years, I've noticed, don't retire well. They don't pivot well into the next season for the very reasons you mentioned. Purpose is really lacking. If I'm not this, then what am I? Is the real question. And they're sorely underdeveloped or completely undeveloped in the notion of the investment in the other. Back to the mentoring piece here. And I don't know that there's a greater satisfaction than seeing another person grow and being a participant in that growth that's just been my core my whole life. I, and I am trying to encourage these people to contemplate that third third in a way that doesn't only reduce their life to, should I golf or should I fish, metaphorically speaking, but rather finding purposes and causes and people particularly to become invested in over time. So that would be the one, that would be one thought I have. I do think that you know, unfortunately, it's like maybe a social commentary. We, we in our society do value youth. And I think one of the things I would love to see challenged is a generation like my own coming through, heading to the third third, that would stay engaged with the younger generations. I have noticed, interestingly, as a sidebar, doing mentors work on college campuses for 30-some uh, years now, that this next generation of young people are, is far more open to mentoring relationships. That's been a, a bit remarkable. When my generation, was, we used to have bumper stickers that said, you never trust anybody over 40. It was literally a thing back in the 60s and 70s. That's really changed. And I think it's partly the way we raise our children. And there's a lot of commentary around that. But I do think that there's openings for people who are heading into the third thirds to re-engage and be received and welcomed to go back and pour their life into the next generation for the purpose of guidance 
ethical and spiritual moral formation, pragmatism. Look, I'll, I'll go on a little bit of a soapbox here. I, I'm working with youth. My wife works has worked in the inner city for almost 20 years with, with children in poverty. And just to see the dysfunction, the broken homes, and the, the loneliness you mentioned earlier, exacerbated by the most recent COVID, if we've ever needed a generation to re-engage, it's now. And I have no intention personally of hanging up my uh, cleats, so to speak. world needs us now, and I want to run through the tape, as they say. I don't want to walk. I don't want to die in a warm bath. That's not my goal. Is that anyone's goal? I didn't, I've not heard that. Warm bath? You're not old enough yet. At some point, you'll get to a point in your life, <laughs> and people will say, my goal in life is to die in a warm bath. okay that works (laughs) i recently stumbled into a poem and i'm not a poetry reader but i I just found it super powerful and so it's called present tense for people that wanted to look it up later on but i loved it so it was the spring but it was the summer i wanted the warm days and the great outdoors it was summer but it was the fall i wanted the colorful leaves the cool air It was the fall, but it was the winter I wanted, the beautiful snow and the joy of the holiday season. It was winter, but it was spring I wanted, the warmth and blossoming of nature. I was a child, but it was adulthood that I wanted, the freedom and the respect. I was 20, but it was the 30s that I wanted, to be mature and sophisticated. I was middle age, but it was my 20s that I wanted, the youth and the free spirit. I was retired, but it was middle age that I wanted, the presence of mind without the limitations. My life was over and I never got what I wanted. And I was like, man, that is pretty spot on. Just this deep desire for something different than where you're at versus the gift that is today and the gift of the people that are around us today, the opportunity to positively shape them. It's so easy to just get wrapped up with where we've been or where we're trying to go and really just look past how awesome this moment is. Like COVID is tough, right? I'm working from home, but it's also such a gift. I get to eat lunch with my kids every day. And so it's kind of just reframing the moment because there's always adversity. I've never felt like life was super easy, but I read that poem and I was like, man, that hit me how wonderful today could be. You're hitting on the one of the most difficult things in the human existence, and that is contentment. And it's an elusive thing. We always live in the present, or sorry, the, the future or the past, and we're afflicted by that. I do think this COVID thing has been an interesting observation, just per- personally, anecdotally, but also just in the friends and people we know within our communities. You either people are kind of thriving in it or they're dying in it. I've noticed they're either lonely and and have taken this point of self-absorption to sort of become inward and almost self-destructive in certain ways. On the other hand, as you mentioned, I have noticed. I even noticed it in our neighborhood. I just the families I notice are out walking at night. I see the I see dads and moms and children, whereas we never saw that before. I know I speak. I spoke earlier in, in the in our time here that uh, our family has probably never been closer. We spend our Sundays together. Kids come over and ran to the sprinklers here on over the weekend and things like these are things probably we wouldn't have done before. So I think people can can use this for uh, an opportunity to live in the present, to understand that I'm a grandpa now and I've got grandchildren right now and they're yet they're one years old right now and and just to uh, look forward to that two hours. Not looking past it to Monday, not living last week and regrets or whatever. I think that slowing down is not an American thing to do. We don't do that well. 
And sometimes when we do that, that silence that we hear is deafening to us. It's, it's super uncomfortable, particularly in the age of communication and cell phones and all the stuff we have. So I would encourage anybody who's listening to maybe try not to live that guy's, the, the poem's truths out and allow it to be instructive. Self-examination is a really important thing that we do to see if there's any truth to that poem. I, by the way, I love that. I, I will, I'm going to, you're mentoring me. Had you heard you're, it before? I had not. Yeah. It's, it's wonderful. I'll have it's to fact piece, check it. Google suggests that a 14-year-old might have written it. I've been fooled by Google before, so I'm not saying that's true. I've got to do a little more due diligence. It's got to be true. It's on the internet. It's got to be true. <laughs> that's a <the> thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, hey, so I want to put a bow on today's conversation. We could chat for hours here. For me, today would be a win if a listener went from listening to something the decisions that they made after this moment were slightly influenced by our conversation. So the goal would be, I'd love for somebody to get a phone call from a listener that they weren't expecting or a video or an email or whatever it might be, right? That somebody's going to make a decision to invest in the life of somebody else as a result of this moment in time in this conversation. So I guess I want to end it with a question to you, kind of like, what would be next? We didn't really talk about Mentors 360, but that's an organization that you helped start that's basically the scaffolding, an opportunity to jump into mentorship without having to go create the relationships from the ground up. Whether it's Mentors 360 or the lives of the teammates that are already within our own organization, what's next to go from just an idea of what mentoring could be to actually impacting another life? A couple quick observations there. I, I would tell people that they are mentors whether they know it or not. I've even defined you define late leadership as influence would be a simple definition of leadership. And if you if you define leadership as influence, then many of us some of some of us our grandmothers were leaders, our mothers were leaders. These were influencers in our lives. In some way that's a mentoring relationship. So People need to, first of all, understand that you are mentoring someone else. People are observing you and your behavior, and they are listening to you. And it might surprise you how many people actually are influenced by your own life as you live it. The part two of that, then, is to making sure that your own life is worth observing. And I would suggest, back to the big rock analogy, I, I would challenge people as a, as, a, as a pragmatic next step as to what are the biggest priorities of your life? And is your life oriented, like decision by decision, day by day, by those highest priorities. The third thing would be to sort of take off to your home. If you do that, if you live, in, in my case, to love God and to love others, those are my two big rocks that reorients how my engagement goes with each person throughout the day. Then it becomes very pragmatic and you live in the present moment, which is far more enjoyable to live in the moment than it is into the future or in the past with all the anxieties and worries and regrets that come there. And then the last thing I would just say that look up in your life and look around you for the people who need the help, the, the helping hand. And don't be afraid to invest or step out or step into with your time into the lives of other people. I can tell you for certain this, that the greatest things I've done in my life have been in and around in some regard, the pouring of my life into the lives of other people. I can, I, without question, and other mentors that would share this, I could bring them in to speak with you that have done the same, will say the very, very same same thing, that the greatest satisfaction, the greatest measurement of success, big topic, how do you measure that is 
the measurement of how many lives that you were able to encourage and to help form and to help develop in, in their lives in a way that was constructive. If the world were to do this, it would be a far different place. So hopefully those are three or four things that might grab someone to think about and somewhat actionable. Amen. That's a mic drop. That'll do it. I uh, really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us about mentorship because the world needs caring people and meaningful relationships now more than ever. And so we covered some wonderful stuff. Thank you so much for your generosity and sharing those convictions and insight. And we'll call it a wrap. Thanks so much, Greg. Thanks, Jared. Bye-bye.